Jennifer Joy. Some of you know my friend here, Jamie. Uh, some of you don't, but uh, we have a guest speaker this morning, Jamie Lawson. So uh, why some of you may know Jamie is because he was the youth pastor at Harvest before Greg was the youth pastor at Harvest. And I got to uh, get to know Jamie uh, at ETV. He made some ridiculously awesome videos when I was there. That's nice of um, you to say. And then through our, my connection with Greg and his connection, he's come and spoken at our youth group retreat several times as well. Uh, and Jamie is someone that I love to get coffee with because I think that the conversation is going to go one way. And we just talk about the deepest. I mean, for me, it's deep. For you, it's probably just normal. Um, <laughs> and, and I always, I used to schedule an hour with Jamie for coffee. And now I like block out two, usually. Because we're just going to go down yeah. roads that are super helpful, at least for me and my faith. Um, and as I call them, share about the series that we're in. We're in a series about community that's coincided with us launching community groups and just wanting to have an emphasis as a, a, to be a community as a church. I kind of went down the list of like some options and I was like, Jamie, or no, I, I said all of them, like community is testimony, is mission, yep. community is resistance. And then I heard Jamie over the phone go, hmm. I was like, I thought that's the one you would want. Because <laughs> Jamie's got a little punk rock in him. Um, but I am super grateful that he is here. I have loved sitting under Jamie's teaching and wisdom. Um, and I've learned a lot from this brother. So church, would we just pray for him as we get to be blessed um, by what the Lord's put on his heart for our church this morning. God, we thank you for Jamie. We thank you uh, for the legacy that he left at Harvest and youth ministry that's only grown. We thank you for his family, Lord. We thank you for the ways that um, you've just grown him as a disciple of you where he longs for the real thing. Uh, he longs for real community. He longs for the, the reality of your kingdom here on earth. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft to respond to your gospel. Would you fill our brother by your spirit with truth um, to proclaim uh, what you've laid on his heart uh, about community as a form of resistance and what that even means. Would you give us eyes to see, Lord, and hearts that want to respond to you. In your name, amen. Let's give it up for Jamie. Thank you uh, for that wonderful reception. I don't know that it bodes super well for you when Matt's like, oh, I used to schedule an hour too. <laughs> Who knows how long I'll be up here. Now that I'm up here, I have control, and we'll see. Uh, it is actually, it's a little more emotional being here with you than I anticipated. Harvest was a really formative time for me. Um, it was in the early 2000s that I was here doing ministry. And the group of people, the community there was instrumental in helping me to discover some things about who I was, let me try some things and fail at some things and try again at some things. I will always be grateful for my time here at Harvest, as well as the continued connection I've had with Matt and Greg. I get to hear a few of the stories about what's happening, so I feel like I know some of you already. Although, I think the last I was here with you was around 2009. That's a long time ago, I think. I'm not sure. I may have had a soul patch at the time. All of my kids, if you don't know what a soul patch is, it's just like when you have just a little, little facial hair right here. Early 2000s was amazing. Uh, boot cut jeans, probably. Um, all of my kids were elementary school and younger. I've got four, three of them are here today. The oldest one is married and doesn't live around here anymore. Um, now, I wear bifocals, um, but that's not a joke. I literally wear bifocals, um, and there is a better than average chance that I might pull a muscle in my back if I sneeze wrong, and that is just, it, it's hard to come to grips with your mortality. So it's been a while. However, and we are here together, uh, for me, want to be the guinea pig in a new place for you, so I'm glad to be able to do that, probably better me than Matter of great. Um, I'm grateful to be here, 
But to be able to talk with you about what community looks like, it feels appropriate. It feels appropriate to come and to share some things about, as you, as you guys gather together, to try to form smaller groups and smaller communities and deepen your relationships with one another. It feels good to be here to help encourage you this morning. And that's what I hope happens. I hope to be able to encourage you. I hope that you are spurred on to want to be involved in community, to give yourself to others in awkwardness, in living rooms, in kitchens, around tables, because it matters. Because Jesus called us not just to assent to an idea, but to live a certain way of life. And we live that certain way of life together. So today we are talking about community as resistance. Community is a lot of things, and this is a deep topic in, in that it can go a long way down. It's complex, and so we won't be able to touch on everything. But what I'm hoping for us this morning is that you will have enough understanding and there will be enough simplicity to the ideas that you can work them out together over multiple cups of coffee. That you can work them out as you go on walks together or sit in a living room and chat over things. Every journey, though, that you take needs a starting point um, and it needs some direction, a trailhead and a map, if you will. So we'll spend our time this morning in two sections. Because if we are talking about community as resistance, we need to know what it is that we are resisting. How is it that a Jesus-following community speaks differently to the culture around them? So the first half, we will spend unpacking the problem. We need to understand what we are battling against, what we are fighting against, and what we are resisting. If we are to do it in the way that Jesus called us to do it, in a way that is faithful, in a way that honors Him, in a way that does it as He has commanded, not in the way that we hope He commanded or choose to think that He commanded, but what is the way that He commanded? The first half might, in fact, have a little bit of repetition for you. You may have gone over this passage and these concepts before, however, they are foundational to where we're going together, so we need to get on the same page. I want to make sure that we're using the same terminology and that we're understanding each other so that we can get to part two, which is to unpack and understand the ways that Jesus calls us to resist from within the boundaries of a Jesus-loving community. The summer when I was 10, I had a babysitter. My mom worked three days a week, and the babysitter would come over and spend all day with my two brothers and I. And her name was Alyssa. She wore parachute pants and Def Leppard t-shirts. And it seems as if she really liked to be around us, which was a different story and a different experience than a lot of other babysitters that we had. She went outside and threw the football with us. She beat me at Donkey Kong, which was not easy to do. That's a video game, by the way, for some of you that are like under 30. She beat me at Donkey Kong. She ate ice cream with us. She played board games. She convinced me to buy my first pair of parachute pants, and I was the first kid in my school to have a pair of parachute pants when school started up again. Parachute pants, if you don't know, nylon, like 50 pockets and a million zippers on them. Uh, think Michael Jackson and not MC Hammer, if that's helpful for you. Um, she convinced me to buy parachute pants and that my hair might look good if it was spiked. She made me feel like I mattered. And when I was 10, I, I suppose you could say that it, she was my first crush. But I knew that the eight-year gap would probably be a problem. Fast forward three years. I'm 13. 
And if you can remember what it was like to be 13, go to that emotional space. I'll give you a minute to gather yourself and to steal yourself, because 13 is not easy. So I was 13 years old, and it was the summer, and I was hanging out with some friends at the Little League fields. That's where I spent time. I played a lot of baseball, and there were six or eight of us sitting on bleachers, and our brothers and friends were playing ball games. And if you, if just to help you imagine what it was like, if you've seen the movie Sandlot, it was that sitting on some bleachers. And so there were this mass of 13-year-old boys, and we were chatting about whatever we chat about. And suddenly, one of the boys goes, whoa. And in unison, we all turn our heads and look. And walking down toward the bleachers was a college-aged girl. And it was Alyssa. And I recognized her, and she came to watch her brother play a ball game. I wanted, more than anything, to say something. But what if she didn't remember me? And the stakes were high at 13 when you're in a group of people that you are getting your identity from. Or worse, what if she saw me and recognized me but didn't care? So I stayed silent as this group of 13-year-old boys watched her come. And she began to walk right toward the bleachers we were, where we were sitting. And she walked directly up to me. And she said, Jamie, I'm so glad to see you. And then she bent down and she kissed me on the cheek. And then she began to ask me questions. I have no idea if I answered her in words or complete sentences or just sounds. Uh, but eventually she said, I was eight years younger, and then she walked off. <laughs> you may be familiar with the story of Moses going up to the mountain to see the glory of God. And coming down with his face shining so brightly that they ask him to put a bag over his head because they can't take it. I am pretty sure that was my experience that morning. That afternoon, I suppose. The reality of our design is that we are shaped by our interactions with others. How others treat us matters. We understand our reality based on these interactions. That day marked me. Alyssa, in a moment, knew exactly what she was doing to an insecure boy trying to find his place in the crowd. And she saw the glory in me, and she called out the glory in me. We shape each other. How you understand yourself is determined by your interactions with everyone else, every conversation, every moment with friends, with parents, with siblings, with relatives, with people that we don't know that honk at us at the wrong time because we've made a quick mistake while we were driving. It shapes us. It says something about us. But I don't have to tell you that not every interaction is a positive interaction. In fact, most of what has shaped us has in some ways malformed us. That something has broken, or we see the world in a way that makes us question who we are and our value in this world. We interpret messages in destructive ways based on other destructive messages that we've experienced in the past. So, we close ourselves off. We protect ourselves from being hurt again, and sometimes rightly so. And we're unsure how to unravel the effect that 
people's hurtful phrases have imprinted on us. So we are affected not only by the positive things, we are also affected by other people's brokenness. Now combine that with the fact that we live in a culture that prizes individualism and personal freedoms above any other freedom and the results are just not what we intend. They're not what we hope for when we value those things. And so we feel in that isolated and out of this isolation. I read some recent statistics and they say this. One in three adults reports feeling loneliness. 60% of adults report that no one knows them well. And 40% of adults say they have zero or one confidant. In our attempts to overcome the brokenness of our culture, we have created a culture of isolation and a culture of loneliness. We are lonely people. And it doesn't take a lot of work to look around and see loneliness being lived out around you. It may even feel like some of your reality. If 60% of adults say that no one knows them well, do the quick math. Because more than 60% of adults are married. And yet... And yet we walk through the world feeling like we are isolated. 44% of students report symptoms of loneliness and depression. And currently, teenagers are on their phones an average of eight and a half hours per day. 2023 statistics. We rely on a digital curated community that mimics friendship but is actually transactional treating people like a commodity that we exchange for attention. And then as we isolate more and more, what we find as we look out is that some people cope with their loneliness by connecting with ideologies that unite around common enemies, around mutual hate, around anger, because anger feels present. It feels like something, and it feels like I'm connected to a group of people. The more we commit to broken and isolated reactions, the stronger the feeling of destruction, and the stronger the reality of destruction in our life. But there's good news. The good news is where we will anchor ourselves. We will anchor ourselves in this one simple idea, and then we will unpack it as we go. And the idea is this. Strongholds of destruction are overcome by living the way of Jesus in community. We all experience strongholds of destruction. The effect of brokenness and sin in our life becomes strong. But the way to overcome it is by living the way of Jesus in community. And every word of that phrase is important. It's not just living the way of Jesus. It's living the way of Jesus together. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he has called us to live the way of Jesus. And we do it together. We are relational beings. We were designed to connect. We were designed to move through life together. And our communities, our Jesus communities, our Jesus following communities have the potential to become a place of resistance to the merry-go-round of brokenness that seems to trap us. It feels like it just is spinning and you don't know how to make it stop or get off. Enter Jesus' communities. But 
If living the way of Jesus in community is a way to resist, what are we resisting? And how do we resist? So let's look back on what might be review for us, but is a really integral, central part of Scripture for us. And how I want us to unpack this together is to think of a metaphor. And the metaphor is a a flywheel. I want you to imagine a flywheel. If you're not entirely certain what a flywheel is, imagine a, a wheel that's attached to an axis. And you apply force to this wheel, and it spins. And a good flywheel, it, it, it has no friction to it, right? So it is, it's grabbing energy so that it can use the energy for other things. And the, the more force you apply to a flywheel, the faster it spins. And our brokenness, the thing that we are resisting is like a flywheel. There are three forces that are being applied to this flywheel. And if there's not friction, it's just going to keep going faster and faster and faster with more force than ever. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at three specific forces that spin this flywheel. We won't spend a lot of time here, but it's important for us to be on the same page. So here's force number one from Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. Force number one is this. Control that drags others with us. Let's read the passage. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Maybe you remember the first part of the story. God creates, and he calls it very good. And man and woman are living in cooperation with God. And there are two trees in a garden. A garden that the Lord himself put man and woman, Adam and Eve in. Gave them a blessing and said, this is how your life will find its meaning. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to multiply. And I want you to subdue it. You are in charge. But here's the thing. You can eat from any tree in the garden but one. Just one. And it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of it because when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so the idea was this. There's a tree of life that Adam and Eve get to keep coming to as much as they want to pull life from this tree and to eat of it giving this picture both of cooperation but also this need to keep seeking God for his wisdom. What happens when you eat? Two hours later, you're hungry and you have to eat again. And here's the brilliance of what God designed. Keep coming. Keep coming. Fill the earth. Multiply. Subdue the earth. Cooperate with me. Let's do this together. And then one day a deceiver comes to the garden and meets them and says, ah, Did God really say you can't eat from it or touch it? And now doubt creeps in. And instead of returning to the tree of life, we find Eve in this spot. Verse 6 and 7. The woman saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and ate it. Rather than seeking God's wisdom, rather than being patient, they rather chose control. And while it seems simple, 
they, they took God's design and they tipped it upside down. And the problem was they don't have the capacity to be the arbiter of good and evil. They don't contain within themselves the, abil- the ability to decide what is good and what is bad. That is God's job, and yet they wanted to shortcut it. They thought, well, God must be withholding something from me. And so they took control. She took some because she thought that looks good. So she took it and ate it. We love control. And it's the first force that starts this flywheel spinning. Our instinct as humans now is to take matters into our own hands. If something seems good, we put ourselves in position to just take it. And then we excuse it. We make all kinds of excuses for ourselves. We set ourselves up to be the decider of right and wrong. A position we never were designed for or have capacity for. But we just keep taking control. And then you see in the story, it wasn't just that Eve took an eight. She gave some to the man who was with her, and he ate. So she, she ropes us all into it, and Adam goes willingly. Like, what was he doing this whole time? He was there. He knew. He could have stepped in, but he didn't. So now we have this element, this force that is about control, and it drags others with us. We convince and we cajole others to see things our way, to lessen the possibility that we might be or feel wrong. Have you been there? You you know you're doing something or want to do something that is a compromise. And instead of owning the decision and moving forward, you get a friend or two to come do it with you. Because when we do it together, it's like, half of the sin. <laughs> right? If we're sharing it, that this is the only half to my account. We control our, our realities in all kinds of ways. Parents, we are the best. We're the best at trying to control the decisions that our kids make. We're the best at trying to control outcomes. We really love control, and it's the first force that starts this flywheel spinning. And then there's a second force that pushes on the flywheel immediately after. And it is fear that leads to hiding. Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. For Adam and Eve, the experiment of control went horribly wrong, and as soon as they took a bite, they knew. They knew. Oh, no. Fear washes over them. And what is their response? It is to hide. They tried to cover themselves up, but they couldn't. It wasn't enough, and so God came searching. Where are you? And then Adam's response, it has made so much sense of the world for me. This one sentence that I think is all of our reality before Jesus. And he says, 
I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The second force that spins this flywheel of destruction that we need to learn how to resist is fear that leads us to hide. How many decisions do you make in your day based on alleviating fear? It's astronomical. Day after day, we get in this pattern to avoid fear. What will people think of me if I do this? So I'll do this. What will I lose if I do this? What do I have to prove? I need to prove myself. So fear leads us to create a different identity that we hide behind. Something that hides us. Because it is hard for us to feel exposed and rejected. And that's what Adam and Eve, that's why they were hiding. They thought it, that was it. They thought it was over. I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. In other words, I didn't know what you would do when you found me. And that's what brokenness does. That's what sin does to us. It, it reshapes things. And so that becomes their reality. Fear that leads to hiding, which leads to force three, which is a curse of death that is constantly present. Genesis 3, 21 to 23. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. Do you see the pattern here? And live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So now, after these two forces, this control, this fear, this hiding, and now there is this ever-present cloud that follows humanity all the time. It is like throwing a red sweatshirt into a load of white towels. It just gets everywhere. It's everywhere all the time, and it is coming for us all. We know. We know that our time is limited. Death is undefeated so far. Our brokenness puts us on a collision course. The result is that we as humanity then do our best to keep it at bay. So we build communities that keep enemies out. We build communities that make us more powerful than this community over here. It infiltrates everything. Governments, cities, empires, it's all broken. So the flywheel spins round and round, faster and faster. And each time it spins, it malforms us just a little bit more and a little bit more. Very different from the original design. Unless, unless, friction can be applied to the flywheel to get it to stop. Ephesians chapter 2, after unpacking the reality of our sin, Paul has this beautiful phrase, but God, but God. So out of this chaos comes Jesus, forsaking his position as God and becoming a man and living amongst those who were dead in their transgressions and sins, and then he makes us alive, sets us free from the curse, offers himself in submission to his Father for the Father's work, all the way to the point of death. And so he dies on the cross for us, offering his life as a ransom for many. And in doing so, his death casts down the enemy that is wielding death as a weapon. And he casts him down. He overcomes death. 
He defeats it. Death is no more. Death no longer has the final say. He tears the curtain. The veil that stood between God and man that broke the relationship, he tears it apart in his death so that we can enter into the throne room all the time because of his sacrifice. And then he conquers it, rising from the dead, defeating death for the last time and saying, death, you you do not have the final word. And then he sends his spirit, his spirit to walk with us, his people, to indwell us and to empower us to walk in the way that we were originally designed, to walk in the way of Jesus together, empowered by Jesus himself. And this is the reality that that breaks the flywheel. He puts his shoulder to it and he grinds it to a halt. But God, and this is now the reality that we are invited into, The reality that there is a way out. The flywheel doesn't have to keep spinning. It doesn't have to hold us back. It doesn't have to hold us down anymore. And so we are this ragtag group, broken, limping, gathered together, cooperating with Jesus and his spirit, trying to pool our resources to live out the way of life that Jesus called us to in the midst of a community that is pushing in the opposite direction. And this is what we resist. This is why community is resistance. Because the flywheel wants to keep a hold on your life. It wants to tell you that you should be afraid. That you should take control. That death is final. But Jesus has broken that. He's broken that curse. And so the question then, how do we do that? How specifically is this resistance? So, go with me to Romans chapter 12. We have three friction points that we want to push against the flywheel with. Right, and Romans 12 is going to help unpack some of this for us. What does it look like to resist together? Friction point number one. We resist the pull of the world by committing to transformation. Let me read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The order here is important. Paul is talking to this church in Rome made up of two arguing factions that he's trying to unite together under the purposes of Jesus. And so he spends all this time looking at the way of Jesus in Romans 1 to 11, and then we get to this part where he's just to unpack. What does it look like? And I love Romans 12 because it's not hard to understand, it's just hard to implement. Right? There's, There's... not a lot of insight that I have to give you. It's, it's pretty easily understandable. But the first part is that in view of God's mercy, we offer ourselves. That's the first step. We resist the pull of the world by committing to transformation. And transformation looks like this. I offer all of myself, my body, my decisions, my reality as a sacrifice, to the way of God for his use and for his purpose. It sets us apart from the world. And then we do not conform to the pattern of this world. Imagine that you've got a mold and that you're taking some clay and you shove it into the mold and pretty soon that clay looks just like the mold 
You take it out and they look the same. And Paul's saying, don't conform. Don't form yourself to the way of the world, the way of the world that's characterized by, by power and fear and control. Don't conform to that. Believer, your life shouldn't look like that, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You commit yourself over and over, day after day, to meditate on the way of Jesus, to pursue understanding, to seek wisdom, to understand His Word, to walk with the Spirit. We transform our minds, and when our minds are transformed and we no longer look like the world, then we will be able to know what His will looks like. The order is important, We don't understand what the will of God looks like for us until we have offered ourselves in submission to Jesus, stopped conforming to the way of the world, meditated on his way, pursued wisdom, and then we go, oh, I see it. I see what it looks like, and I see what it doesn't look like. It's proactive. Requires effort. It requires walking in step with the Spirit. And it is a way that we resist the pattern of the world. So then, friction point two. Friction point two is that we resist building our own name by committing ourselves to the body. So Romans 12, 3 to 8. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul uses a negative first, followed by a positive. I think he recognizes the human condition and the human propensity for us to make things about ourselves. We, we, we love to interpret the world through our own reality. And it's easy to use a good thing for a selfish purpose. And so Paul sets up this idea of using your gift first with, hey, um, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Then use your gift. On our best days, our motivations are mixed. Right? That, that shouldn't deter us. Right? It's progress, not perfection. We're walking toward Jesus a little bit more each day, day by day. And our best days are, it's mixed. We want to serve, and that's real, and sometimes we want to be seen serving, and that's real too. And so it creates this kind of war within us. And Paul's saying, hey, look, just over time, as your mind transforms, don't think of yourself more highly than you are. But also know this. You're a body with members. And each member has a purpose. And so, I say to you, you have something to give. You have something to offer. And the way that we push against and resist the way of the world is that we give of ourselves. We don't make it about us. We make it about us. And I give myself and the things that I'm good at for the good of this body. And we let other people use their gifts for the good of the body. And to be honest, that's harder. It's harder to sometimes give up control and to let somebody else go. Sometimes we don't want other people to be generous because it requires that we accept their generosity. We don't want to be the ones 
receiving hospitality, we want to be the one giving hospitality. And so utilizing our gift is twofold. It's using it, and it's letting other people use theirs. Let one another use their gifts. A mark of maturity is that we help other people learn to use and develop the gifts that they have, and so come to maturity. The last friction point is that we resist by being back up. Resist being overcome by evil by committing to cling to the way of Jesus. This last section of Romans 12 is pretty cut and dry. So let me read it, and I just have like a couple short things to point out. So starting in verse 9, it says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We cannot overcome evil with more evil. That's the summary of this passage. And there are times when we are tempted. We are tempted to use power. We are tempted to tear others down. We are tempted, we are tempted to repay. You cannot overcome evil with evil. This is a strategy. The way that we overcome evil is with good. We live out good always. We live out good when others are doing evil to us. We forgive when others are not forgiving of us. We are hospitable and open our homes up. The way of Jesus isn't an optional idea. It is an invitation to be. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Author Madeline Langle said this. She said, we draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. This is the strategy. Community as a resistance is we show love when the world tries to show power and authority. We sacrifice when the world says hoard. We forgive when the world says take revenge. And we live it out together. And in doing so, we draw people to a light of Jesus. So let me close with just asking an honest question. What does this mean when we're just a bunch of weirdos gathered awkwardly in someone's living room? 
right? It sounds lofty, but the reality is we sit across from each other and we open our Bibles and sometimes we're like, mm, should I read? Do I talk? Do we ask questions? Do we just eat food? Do we, what do we do? How does actually being in a living room together, how is that resistance? Well, let me offer you a vision. It may seem innocuous, but together is how we learn to resist the old way and to live a new way. We resist the culture's message that relationships are temporary and transactional and that people are a commodity when we commit and show up. Even when we don't feel like it, or we've had a long day, or we're not getting anything out of it. We commit. We resist the force of fear and hiding when we hold space for others that are overwhelmed or hurting or doubting or have questions. We resist the temptation that we must hide our true selves when we confess our sins to each other. We practice kindness during times we want to demonize or tear down. We practice patience when we're annoyed. We share a meal and a table with those whose ideologies are different than ours and that ours speak of as an other. We learn from our differences together around a meal. Can you see it? It's in the small, thousands of small decisions over time in the presence of each other, every kindness, every forgiveness, every confession, and our simple communities working out the way of Jesus are a declaration to the enemy and to our neighbors that fear does not have the final word and that death has not won and that Jesus reigns. Nothing else matters. The Apostle John said this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Pray with me. Father, give us strength and courage by your Spirit to give of ourselves to one another. I pray, Father, for this community of people that you would raise in them a desire to be together and to live the way of Jesus together. Give them patience as they work it out. Give them understanding. We pray, Father, that you would help us to resist the pull of the world, the pull of the enemy, and that we would live the way of Jesus and trust it with our whole life and our whole heart. We give ourselves to you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.